we um, continue our study of Galatians this morning, we, uh, we find ourselves still in the first chapter. We're going to be um, in chapter 1. Uh, we read verse 10 last week, but we're going to start again this week with verse 10, reading through to the end of the chapter. We, we have seen here, as we have, as we have picked up this, this letter to the church in Galatia from Paul, what we are seeing is, is that Paul is addressing uh, this group in Galatia, the, these churches in uh, Galatia, that are beginning to fall under the influence of false teachers. These false teachers specifically want to add to the gospel. They want to make the gospel Jesus plus. Grace plus. Yes, Jesus is great. Grace is great, and it's important, but we've got to add something to it. You've got, you got a Jesus plus works. Specifically, what, what these folks in Galatia are trying to do is they're trying to add elements of the Jewish Old Testament law. Yes, grace is wonderful. Grace is grace. Grace is what gets us started down the journey. But in order to complete the journey, you've got to fulfill the law. Specifically, for the people in Galatia, they were uh, these opposers, these opposition in Galatia, they were specifically concerned uh, about um, circumcision. And so I, I do just want to warn you, we are not there yet, but there will come a time in our study of the book of Galatians where we will have to discuss circumcision. This is what Paul's responding to when he writes to the church in Galatia. This is what Paul tells us in verse 4 that he is amazed by. He is amazed that they have so quickly turned from the gospel. You know, we, di we didn't, I, I didn't mention this uh, as we've gotten started, but it's important for us as we think about the book of Galatians um, uh, to sort of create an outline in our head. And the outline has three equal sections. The first section of the outline um, is, is this. It's autobiography. And that takes up verses, uh, chapters uh, 1 and 2. The, the second portion of the outline, it's also two chapters. In fact, all of these uh, chapters are, all of these sections are two chapters. It's very convenient that way. The chapters three and four, the second section that we'll be get to uh, in a couple of weeks, is theology proper. What we might talk about theology proper. Theology is a word that I think it has come to terrify us. Because maybe at some point when we were in college and we were in a humanities class or at some point somebody handed us what was probably a poor translation of a German theologian and asked us to read it and it made no sense. And so we're like, oh, well, theology is not for me and we put it to the side. I understand a lot of those German guys are hard to understand, um, particularly in translation. But what theology really means is the study of God or, or God talk. I would offer that all of us are theologians because we all think about God. We all, I hope, wish to study God, learn more about God, talk about God. That's theology. And so these middle two chapters that we're going to get to, chapters three and four, are about theology proper, God, what God is doing. 
And in the last two chapters, chapters 5 and 6, Paul takes up the question of what we might call ethics. And what the ethics is, is it's, it's really easy. It's, it's how that theology is the outworking, out, is worked out in our lives. So, so he tells us who God is, about God, what God has done for us, and then how does that get worked out in our lives? How do we live in light of the truths that we know about? But for right now, we're still in that first section. We're in that section that's autobiography. There was a, um, a Baptist theologian. Okay, can, we, can we get over being scared by that word? Um, in uh, the late 20th and very, very early 20th century, named uh, James McClendon. Um, he was at Southern Seminary. He ended up out at Fuller. Uh, McClendon had this idea of what he talked about as narrative theology, us being able to, to tell theology f- from and through our story and the stories of others. And there were a lot of people when it first came out who were like, mm, I don't know about that. That sounds like something weird and not normal. And I would point to Paul. Paul, in these first two chapters, he's doing narrative theology. He's telling the story of his life and how it means and and what it means theologically. And so we are in Galatians, the first chapter. We're going to start, like I said, with verse 10. Read through to the end of the chapter. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, (laughs) but when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. Then, after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, that is, uh, Simon Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I declare in the sight of God, I am not lying in what I write to you. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia. I remained personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ. They simply kept hearing, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we open your word this morning, I just pray that your grace would overwhelm us, that the story of Paul's life would inspire us and show us your truths. 
I pray that, that we would seek your glory. That like the church in Judea, when we hear of Paul, we could glorify you and what you have done through him and for us. And so God, as we open your word and study it this morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Do you remember, did you, have any of you ever experienced a testimony service? In the church that I was growing up in, often it would happen on Sunday night. Um, normally it would happen on Sunday night, the, you know, the one Sunday a quarter that the associate pastor, who was only a year or two out of seminary, was allowed to preach. And so it, it didn't want to overwhelm him by asking him to preach on Sunday evening as well. And, and well, the pastor didn't want to have to do anything that week, so, so he didn't have to preach. He didn't want to prepare for Sunday evening, so we had testimony service perhaps a little cynical in an understanding of how testimony services came about, but, but I'm sure you've experienced this. It's, it's people would get up. Uh, sometimes maybe we, one or two people would be asked ahead of time, and then otherwise it would open up to the congregation and people would, would get up and give their testimony, the story of what God had done and was doing for them. Oftentimes testimony would be a story of conversion, Sometimes the stories were as dramatic as Paul's. I was on my way home. It was a thunderstorm. I ran off the road. I ended up up in a tree, and I cried out to God, God, if you get me out of this tree alive, I'll never drink again, and I'll give my life to you. And brothers and sisters, here I am. Haven't had a drop since. Right? You've, you've all heard some version of that story. I've got at least two or three versions of that story in my own family. But sometimes the testimonies were about what God was doing in the moment for someone. Man, we've got God, God is moving in this congregation. I know you. I know your stories. I know what God is doing for you. Y'all got testimonies. We could have a testimony service tonight, and we could fill hours of testimony of what God is doing for you and doing in this congregation, if, you know, y'all would actually get up and talk about it. And that's what we've got here in Galatians, these first two chapters, these chapters of autobiography. They're, they're Paul's testimony. They're Paul telling this is what God has done in our lives. And, and one of the reasons that Paul is doing this, one of the reasons that testimonies are so powerful when people give their personal testimony, is because the best resource we have in telling people about Jesus, telling people about the gospel, is ourselves and our own story and what God has done for us. We are our best argument for the gospel. Unfortunately, sometimes we're also our worst argument for the gospel, aren't we? But what we're seeing here, yes, we're seeing Paul defend his character. It's pretty clear that some in the opposition party are using Paul's past against him. Well, you can't really believe what that guy told you, right? Have I told you about what he did when Stephen was stoned? 
What have I told you about what he did to the church in this place or that place? You can't trust him and what he tells you about the gospel. And so Paul's, yes, Paul is, is defending himself. But he's also not trying to just vindicate himself. He's trying to vindicate the gospel by showing what the gospel has done for him and in his life. In 1 Timothy, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, the worst of the worst. He's the very bottom of the sin barrel. Now, I, I want us to be honest with ourselves. How many of us would stand up today in front of a group of people and say, I am the chief of sinners? Not many of us would own that, would we? Well, I sin, but I'm not as bad as those people over there. Well, well, I sin, but it's not serious. And yet Paul stands up in Timothy and he says, I am the chief of sinners. Look at what I've done. Paul wants to show two things. He wants to show first where the gospel comes from, and second, he wants to show what the gospel has done for him. And he knows that in telling his own story, he can do these two things. So the first thing that Paul wants to do is he wants to show that his gospel did not come from man, but from God. He says right there, right? I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is what? Not of human origin. Man did not invent the gospel. So there are two things that Paul's telling us here. When he says, when he says where it came from, that it came from God, he's saying the gospel as a whole came from God, and in my life the gospel came from God. Now on the whole, the gospel came from God because we wouldn't come up with it. We wouldn't invent the gospel. It comes from God, and it's, and it's the, the standard uh, by which we measure every other set of ideas, every other philosophy, every other religion. This is, by the way, what we mean when we say a Christian worldview. We mean a worldview, a way of looking at the world that is so infused and shaped by the gospel that we see everything through gospel-tinted glasses. See, we wouldn't make the gospel up. Because, because if we as people, as human beings, were given the power to determine how we earned God's favor and place in heaven, we would invent a scoring system, wouldn't we? Human beings love to keep score. Unless you're the University of North Carolina basketball team. Sorry. But human beings love to keep score, right? Right? I mean, I mean, we keep score on everything. We keep scores on everything. We love keeping score. We love, we love figuring it out, right? How do we do? How do we represent justice? Justice is blind, right? She's blindfolded, but what has she got in her hands? A balance, a scale. Because we're going to keep score. We're going to make sure that everything comes out in the balance. We're going to make sure everything comes out in the wash. 
See, we would have, we would have made up a, a scoring system. Make sure that we were on the, the what, the, the naughty or the nice list. Sometimes we can have a conversation about the way we talk about Santa Claus teaches our children works righteousness. See, it's the natural default of the human heart towards works righteousness. Grace offends our natural sensibilities. We don't want to trust grace because grace means that we're not in control. If I can earn my salvation, if I can put up enough good stuff in the good column, it's up to me and nobody else. Fundamentally, it's my responsibility. We love that, right? Personal responsibility. I'm going to take personal responsibility in my life. And let's talk, you know, it's a good thing. But when it comes to grace, there's no personal responsibility. We're not in control. There's no control in grace. God's in control. And it makes us uncomfortable. Because we want to know we want to have the control. We want to, we want to hold on to it. We want to have the power. See, the gospel is like water. We didn't invent it. We didn't come up with it. But we can't live without it. So Paul wants to show that the origins of the gospel isn't, isn't man-made. We didn't, we human beings didn't come up with it. But he also wants to show that he didn't get it from other people. He wants to show that God gave it to him directly. And, and that's when a, a little bit later, when he talks about what happens to him post-conversion in verses uh, 17 and 18 and 19. You know, what does he say? He says, he says I'm, I was converted and I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't talk to the apostles. I didn't get anything from them. In fact, I went to Arabia for three years and spent time with God. And then when I came back, the gospel that I proclaimed was the same gospel the apostles were proclaiming because we got it from the same source. We got it from Jesus Christ. They got it during his life. I got it post his resurrection, but it's the same gospel. And hey, guess what? Yes, I went after three years in Damascus, I went down to Jerusalem. I spent 15 days. Can we talk about how incredibly specific 15 days is? Like he could have said a few days, two weeks, a couple of weeks. No, he says 15 days. Makes me wonder how awkward that visit was. But if Paul's like sitting in his room at night going, okay, one more day, one more day. 15 days I spent with Peter, and I didn't see any of the other apostles except James. And we all know about James, right? Like, he didn't even believe in Jesus in his lifetime. And so the gospel that I am proclaiming, I haven't spent any time in the Judean churches, I haven't spent any time in the, the original churches, and yet they recognize the gospel that I proclaim, that they hear that I am proclaiming as the true gospel, as the gospel they got directly from Jesus Christ, because guess what? I got it directly from Jesus Christ. So the origin of the gospel is not man-made. Whether, whether the origin of the gospel as a whole is something we invented, that's out. Paul shows us that that's out. And whether or not the origin of Paul's gospel that he preached was getting it from another man, that's out. He got it from Jesus. And it was the same gospel, the exact same gospel that Jesus gave to the apostles. So he's shown the origins of the gospel. Now he wants to show the power of the gospel in his life. 
And so we, we sort of have three elements of this. We have the pre-conversion Paul, the, po- the conversion of Paul, and the post-conversion Paul. The pre-conversion Paul is a man who is in need of grace. He is a terrorist. Paul's a terrorist. Paul is a religious terrorist. He's going from town to town, pulling believers out of their homes, seeing them put on trial, and overseeing extrajudicial killings of them. That is terrorism. The words that Luke uses in Acts to describe what Paul is doing is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe a marauding army coming in and burning a town to the ground. That that's what Paul was doing to the church. It's not like Paul was going around to the church and would step into the church and be like, my dear brothers and sisters, I do believe that you are wrong, that Jesus is not the Messiah, and that the gospel is incorrect. That's not how Paul is fighting the church. Paul's fighting the churches by coming into a town, whipping people up into a frenzy, and seeing Christians killed. Paul is doing the same thing in the first century in the same area of the world that ISIS was doing just a few years ago. The exact same thing. Persecuted the church. He was a terrorist. We also know that Paul was zealous. He tells us that he was zealous. He tells us that he was very, very serious about his religion. He was very sincere about his religion. This is a word that we love to use these days, right? Well, he's so sincere. Well, I don't necessarily agree with him, but he tells it like it is. You need to be your authentic self. Sincerity doesn't bring you to salvation if it's not a sincere belief in the truth. You can sincerely believe a lie. You can can sincerely proclaim a falsehood. You can sincerely be wrong. And you can be consumed by religion and miss Jesus. So Paul was a terrorist. Paul was a zealot. Finally, Paul was proud. I think it's interesting. I think some of this pride still seeps through here. Verse 14, I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries. There's still a bit of pride in there, isn't there? This pride, not not the murder, not the terrorism, not the zealotry. The pride is Paul's primary issue. That's his primary sin. In Philippians, he says, in Philippians 3, verses uh, four, and si- 4, 5, and 6, he says, Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. That's pride. He was proud of who he was. He was proud of what he had done. He was proud. He had done it. He had done it. And guess what? If he had done it, he had no need for Christ. Pride, brothers and sisters, pride is what blinds men and women to their need 
for Jesus. Pride is what makes it impossible for us in our own power to come to Christ. Pride is what drove Adam and Eve to eat the fruit. Pride is what drove the people of the city of Babel to reach for the heavens. Pride is what kept David at home when armies go to war so that he could walk on a rooftop and see a woman that was not his wife and take her to be his own. Pride. Pride gets in the way. Pride is the root of so much sin. You know, sometimes, sometimes we talk about finding God. I, I'm going to find God. Or, or, you know, there's, there's the old joke about, you know, have you found Jesus? I didn't know he was missing. There's an old cartoon. Somebody comes to the door, a couple of door-to-door uh, proselytizers. They come to the door. They knock on the door. Guy opens the door, and he goes, um, have you found Jesus? And you see a pair of be-sandaled feet sticking out from behind the curtain. We talk about that, right? Have you found, what a statement of pride. Have you found God? Have you found Jesus? God finds us. God finds us. We don't find him. That lost sheep who's wandered away from the 99 doesn't even know he's lost. He's a sheep. He's eaten the grass that's right in front of him. He doesn't know the shepherd is looking for him. He doesn't know he's been separated from the flock. He doesn't know that he's about to be devoured by wolves. He's a sheep. And I love them, but they're dumb. And yet the the shepherd leaves the 99, what? To go find the one. Have we found Jesus? What a statement of pride. Karl Barth said this, true Christians are victims of a successful surprise attack by God. Paul's conversion is a work of God's grace. His pre-conversion self was one of pride, one of terrorism, one of zealotry, but his conversion is a work of God's grace. Because it it required God's intervention. Right? We don't find God. God finds us. The gospel is a rescue mission. What a beautiful three-word phrase at the beginning of verse 15. But when God. But is a really powerful word, right? The saints have scored, but there's a flag on the play. The kids were involved in a really bad car accident, but no one was hurt. Zach fell out of the tree in the front yard. Which he did. But nothing was broken. But is such a powerful, 
and potentially beautiful word. But when God. Conversion involves God's eternal planning. So God intervenes, but God also plans. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart. Before Paul was born, God had set him apart. And yet Paul still spent years rebelling against God, persecuting his church, fighting God as an enemy of God. But guess what? God's plan willed out. Because God's will, we can be willful. My mother likes to talk about that I'm the hardest-headed person that's ever lived. She hasn't spent that much time around Jamie yet. But my will is nothing compared to God's. God's plan, God's will wins out. See, conversion involves God's gracious calling to us. That's what he says, right? When he set me apart and called me by his grace, you know, we, we think sometimes that when God calls us, it's like calling a child to dinner, right? The kids are out in the yard, you know, playing, and you go out the back door and you say, all right, it's time to come in, time for dinner. And guess what? Ten minutes later, they're still out there. It doesn't matter that ten minutes before they had said, all right, Mom, I'll be there. But when God calls, there is no, I'll be there in ten minutes. God's call is action. God's word is deed. Let there be light. There was light. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out. Storm, be calm. And the storm was calm. When God calls us, there is no question as to whether or not we respond. When, when, asked, when asked to give your testimony, when asked how it was that you became a Christian, our response should be, it was by grace. Pure, unadulterated grace that God called me. You know, Paul was not searching for God Paul wasn't a seeker. He was the enemy of God. And it was grace that called him. Mark Dever tells a story. A woman came up to him one time and she said, why are there so many vipers in the church? And he said, well, I don't know. That's a good question. Do you think it's any better outside the church? Well, no. No okay, I don't disagree with you. I think there are a lot of vipers inside the church, but we've always got room for one more anytime you want to slither on in. Conversion involves us seeing the glory of Christ. Apart from the corrective lens of grace provided to us by the Holy Spirit, we will never see anything. I, I, I know who you are, but I can tell you, I can't see any of you right now. 
I can't see what is going on in the world. I need to have my vision corrected. We need help to see. That's that's how it happens. Pre-conversion, Paul is a fanatic, zealot, religious man who is headed in the wrong direction. His conversion was brought about by God's grace from the beginning to the end. And after his conversion, his story becomes a faithful proclamation of Jesus, the one who gave him the message. The gospel is not good advice from man, it is good news from God. In Christ, we find what our heart has always longed for. No other love is greater. No other hope is more secure. No other forgiveness is this complete. No other joy is this deep. And no other freedom is this liberating. It is grace. It is grace that takes a man from terrorist to proclaimer of the gospel. It is grace that takes us from being the chiefest of sinners to being beloved children of God. One of the ways that we enact grace is at this table. We're reminded at this table of the work of Christ. And so as we come to the table this morning, I I wish to remind you that this is the Lord's table and all are invited. All are invited. But it is our understanding that those who are baptized are the ones who come to the table. And so, brothers and sisters, if you are in love and charity with your neighbor, if you repent of your sin, if you wish to seek and glorify God, if you wish to lead a new life, draw near to this table and experience His grace. On the evening that Christ was to be betrayed, He met with His disciples in an upper room. On the eve of the Passover... And before the meal started, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. And so they shared a meal together. Christ and his disciples, Christ and the ones that would run from him, Christ and the one who would deny him, Christ and the one who would betray him, broke bread and ate a meal. And at the end of that meal, while all of those men, those sinners, were sitting at the table, Christ took the cup. And He blessed it. And He said, this is My blood, shed for you and for the many.
brothers and sisters, the body of Christ, take, eat, in remembrance of him. And the cup of salvation, the blood that established a new covenant, drink in remembrance of him. Scripture tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we do so in proclamation of Christ's death until he may come again. been a weird week it started weird it was weird in the middle it's, it's been weird at the end but when God brothers and sisters my name is Carter McNeese and I am the chief of sinners but when I was a child unborn in my mother's womb, God called me. And may I from this day until my last drawing breath rejoice in the grace that I have been given, proclaim Christ's death, his resurrection, and the gospel. Our hymn of invitation is going to be blessed be the time.